I think there's some charisma to Fawn. Ooh. Or the riz, as the kids are saying. The riz. You taught me that. I think you taught me that. I know. (laughs) Did I use it right? Welcome to Signal, the podcast that raises your frequency. I'm Maury Fontanez. And I'm Melissa Grushka. And this week, we're going to talk about fawning. Bean, you ready? Always. Hi, Beanie. Hi, Reem. Happy November. I don't know why it feels like it's been a long time. Oh, because we took one week off, even though the listeners don't know, but we know. That's why it feels like it's been a long time. It does feel that way. Yeah. And now it's November. We're done scaring ourselves and everybody else, and we're here to get serious. I think you got the most scared out of everybody, (laughs) truthfully. Is that surprising? No. Not even a little. I did get some really good texts from people being like, this episode freaked me out. Or this episode oh, I was listening to in the dark. Yeah, I got some of that. Oh, wow. I didn't Actually, know it was so funny. TJ was listening to last week's episode in the shower. And he got out of the shower. He was still listening to it. And he's like, getting ready. Three times I walked in the bathroom to get stuff. And every time he jumped when I walked in the bathroom. <laughs> I'm like, dude, what is your deal? He's like, think about what I'm listening to here. It's like, wow, we are succeeding. Wow, very spooky. He doesn't even I seem know. the type who could be unnerved a, a, a that easily. I know. I'm, that's why I'm so proud of us. But wow. listen, we're yeah. in November now. It's time to focus on our own personal growth again. Totally. And you know, yeah. turkey time. And turkey time. Uh, what was your week like? You got any cringes for us? Any delightful moments? I'm just going to say something pretty basic. My delight okay. has honestly been the weather this week. <laughs> It's been like unseasonably warm. And even though I'm a Northeast girl and I love me some different seasons, it was kind of nice to have a nice warmer end of October than normal. Like it was kind of like a, don't forget, I'll be back. You know, it left for a little, it was getting chilly. I was wearing sweaters. Then it popped back in and was like, just took a quick hiatus. I'm here again. I'll be back in the spring. And I'm like, okay, thanks. Thanks for stopping by. That was such an easy way to say goodbye to you. It it was an easy letdown. It gave you closure. It did. I I feel good Good about it. You? Anything for you? Uh, I have a cringe. Oh, my favorite. I have a cringe that when it happened, I was so embarrassed. And then I was like, well, clearly I've talked about this to Bean on the podcast. So I have a client who's deaf. And they do an amazing job in our sessions because Google Meet, by the way, is the most accessible virtual meeting room. For anyone really? who wants to know. So Google wow. Meet, yeah. Google Meet transcribes just in the moment. So he's able to follow along by reading. And he's like one of my most insightful clients. My sessions with him are so amazing because he teaches me stuff. Anyway. That's beautiful. That's not cringy. We, no, that's not cringy at all. That's delight. But I started this thing because my sessions are back to back to back that I set a timer for 50 minutes to end the session at 50 minutes so we can do wrap ups for the last 10 And I was trying to explain to them that this is what I'm doing and was like, hey, so just so you know, I set a timer for 50 minutes. um, So if you hear a timer go off, that's what that is. Did you catch it? Yeah. They're deaf. Oh, I didn't even get. Oh, my gosh. So then what do you say? Were you like, oh, sorry. That is really cringy, actually. So cringy i wanted to like go under the table i've been coaching this person for six months like clearly i understand wow Uh, and also it's ableist to even say something totally totally 
Yeah, super Honestly, embarrassing. You're canceled. It's over. <laughs> I'm ca- I signing off myself. right now. And then I was like, um, what I meant to say is that if I'm abrupt, that's why. Sorry, I said Smart. it that way. And he was so lovely. He's like, no, no. I mean, unfortunately, this is the thing with this is the thing with being disabled in our society. Is like you have to make so many concessions for people who are totally. not. So unfortunately, he's used to this kind of nonsense, which is not okay. But he was lovely about it. How did, is he able to type through? I'm just curious how he's able to respond. No, he speaks perfectly. Oh, it's incredible. Great. Yeah. Yeah. He's got an earpiece. He speaks perfectly and he reads what I'm saying, but he's not going to hear my damn alarm. Alarm. Love that. (laughs) Anyway, so if you'll still have me, I figure we should do the rest of our show. Is that not the cringiest thing I've said? It's like you're like embarrassed. I'm, uncom- I'm like thinking of all these co- uh, comparable scenarios, like asking somebody in a wheelchair if they could just stand up for a second. And it's exactly that. I know. It's disgraceful. Yeah. Uh, but well, we all know your for- intention was not that. Okay. Thank you. I was going to say, thanks for making me feel worse. I know. I knew you were going to say that. All right. So today we're going back into the world of personal growth. I'm so excited. It's time. Yeah. But I, I feel slightly naked out of costume i have to say this is my first episode out of costume in a month and i feel i know professional but i feel naked at the same time professionally naked i have to say i had like a excitement every time i'd wake up in october on a friday which is the days we record because it was like ooh, what's being gonna be today wow and uh, you know what that reminds me of, actually? <laughs> I have to just tell this anecdote. When I was little, my mom used to make up stories that she would tell me at bedtime, and she'd tell them Aww. to me at the bus stop, too, to distract me from my separation anxiety from her. Aww. And she would tell me this story of this um, sister, pair of sisters named Angela Mangela. <laughs> <laughs> huh? Wait, and, the, and- one is Angela, one is Mangela? Yeah, yeah. She needs but, she needs a little work on her creativity. <laughs> but if you hear my mom say it in her sing-song Persian yeah. accent, it's Angela Mangela. <laughs> so Angela Mangela, her sisters, and one day their mom takes them to the grocery store and mm. they see this tomato and they're for some reason like really <laughs> magnetized to this tomato, tomato, and they take the tomato home and they put the tomato in their room only to find out that every morning when they wake up, tomato transforms into some magical <gasps> creature. Like one day it's a unicorn, and then that whole day they have an adventure with the unicorn. The next day it's a mermaid. They go into the Ooh. ocean with the mermaid. So like I used to every morning be so excited to go to the bus stop with her because I'd be like, what is tomato going to turn into today? Oh, I love and that. you brought that back. You gave me my tomato excitement wow, I'm in October. Wow, i to be your tomato. Tomato. <laughs> And she told my kids this story when they were little. And so they they say tomato like that too now Aww. because they know. They know tomato is magical. Tomato. Anyway. Anyway. So that's that. It's over. That. The, yeah. the fun is over. <laughs> but like I said, I'm excited to get back to personal growth, obviously, because it's what I do for a living. But because I think that today's topic is something that – is newly entering the collective consciousness. And I want to start to really break it down and understand it better. And it is the concept of one specific trauma response that we don't know enough about. So Bean, if I say to you, what are the trauma responses? What would you say? say? Fight or flight, period. Fight or flight, exactly. So most people 
know of fight or flight, but there are two more that aren't talked about. So there's actually four right now being discussed in modern psychology, four trauma trauma responses, fight or flight, freeze or fawn. And actually, I shouldn't say or because you can do more than one at a time. Which was news to me. Yeah. Fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. And so we are going to talk about fawning because when I first heard about fawning from my psychotherapist friends and started to research it myself to figure out how it applies to my coaching and my method, I realized, wow, fawning is something that I think is the most pervasive trauma response that we all do to some extent, or most of us. Oh, really? And it's really important, I think, for people to understand it. Yeah. So let's get into it, shall we? Yeah. I'm interested to hear your take now that you think that because even when I was doing a tiny bit of research about it. I didn't, I was curious like how that presents itself frequently. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get into it. And I think we should okay. actually talk about the other three too, so yes. that we distinguish between the four. Agreed. So a trauma response is really um, our human response when we're in a stressful or dangerous situation right? Mm -hmm. And most of these trauma responses come from triggers or moments of stress um, or harm in our childhood. So I just want to say, when we say the word trauma on this show, we're going to use it the way I use it in my method, which is any moment that causes stress, pain, distress, harm in your childhood. I think sometimes people hear the word trauma and think it's got to be something really intense. And then they'll like say, well, death. I wasn't abused. Right. Yeah. And therefore, I didn't suffer trauma. We all have suffered some aspect of trauma in our lives and in our childhood. And interestingly, when I was researching, it did say that it's however the body perceives the situation to be. The so threat. even if it's not a very stressful situation objectively, if you and your body perceived it to be like a more minor circumstance, right. then that that's just how your body's going to respond. Yeah. And I mean, we don't understand enough about the brain and how memories are, you know, logged away. Mm -hmm. But the slightest thing could, you know, trip this trigger. It could be a smell. It could be, a, you know, something you see. It could be a movie you watch. It could be anything that would start this trauma response happening. I, I think I was saying the bear. Did we talk about this? We talked about it a while ago, but I don't remember what we were referring to. You mean the show? There's a scene. Yeah. There's a scene in the second season of the bear that made me go into freeze. Oh, mode right. The, because right. it reminded me of something from my childhood. So my point is like, it can be super unexpected. And then you see something that's familiar and suddenly your body is perceiving that there's a threat. Right. So the way that our body handles subconsciously this threat is through one of these four trauma responses. So fight, I'm sure you can guess. What do you think that means? Fight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like being aggressive and intimidating somebody or bullying, rage. Yeah, totally. So it's like responding to that response in a – or responding to that stimulus in either a physical or verbal kind of fight. Um, and people will feel emotions like anger or irritability. That's how you know you're in fight mode. And there's this sense of wanting to retaliate or confront the threat head on. That's fight. Right. Do you think that I ever get into fight? I do. I was thinking about <laughs> it and I was actually thinking about our most recent disagreement, which was one of very few. And I was thinking how it 
I think it exemplified our trauma responses yes, a little bit, totally, and it, it, totally. which is very different for us. And we have so many similarities. So for that yeah. to be such a difference was noteworthy. Yeah. Yeah. I think we could talk about when I go through them, actually, let's talk about which ones we think we are. But I had to say it because I know that you know that fight is my main trauma response. Um, okay. So flight, quickly, what do you think? Ignore, trying to get away from it as easily and quickly as possible, which is yeah, what I so think running, I do. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So running away from the threat, avoiding it. Yep. Um, and this can actually be literally like disappearing from the situation, actually running away yeah. or just avoiding a conversation. Um, and it was interesting when I was looking into this, some of the psychotherapists that talk about this in their articles um, talk about things like staying too long at work as a way of avoidance or oh. staying busy with other activities, like constantly yes. being busy so that you're not dealing with the emotion or the threat. <laughs> yes. Venus raising her hand. Silently raising my hand. <laughs> I mean, I am also really busy, but sometimes I do think I just stay moving. To yeah. Not totally. Deal with something. Yes. A lot of people. Yeah. Have that one. Okay. Freeze. What do you think? Um, freezing is just when you are almost paralyzed. Like you don't even know how to, your body goes numb. You don't even, can't get the words out. You can't get your sentiment out. You you don't know, you're like stuck in the moment, in time. Perfect. Thank you. Your body literally is paralyzed or your mind is paralyzed, meaning like you just don't know what to say, like you were saying. Um, and it can debilitate you from making a decision. So decision oh. paralysis is a good example of the freeze um, mm. or just like not knowing how to respond in a situation. I have a lot of decision paralysis myself. So perhaps yeah. I have a little combo, a little combo pack That's of trauma true. response. That's why I think this is a Venn diagram. Like I think we have some yeah. of yeah. a All lot of, of these in our responses, but freeze is really, you know, you can, you know, you're in freeze if you're disassociating, you're numbing yourself with alcohol or drugs, you're isolating, um, you're sleeping oversleeping, sleeping too much. These are ways of completely avoiding the pain. Oh, um, I would have thought stimulus. That, that numbing would be more under flight. You find it to be more under freeze. Wow. This is, I think, an example of freeze because it means that instead of knowing what to do, you're finding, you're finding a way to, well, I guess you're right. It could be flight too. Yeah. You're but like, numbing. I want to think about this. I'm going yeah, here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to avoid it. But numbing can be freeze because it's like, I'm just going to, I don't know what to do. So maybe then you revert to flight. Right. And then fawn. What do you think this means? The star of our show today. Baby <laughs> dear. Um, I, what I have read it to be because I was actually You're one of the people. supposed to guess. This is a oh. trivia. Oh, well, I was totally on when we did discuss this as a topic. I too was totally unaware that this was actually a thing. I thought it was fight or flight. I mean, okay, that's what we've so been cool. talking about. Cool. Take yourself back to before even looking it up. Okay. What do you think when you hear that word? What do you think this could mean? Fangirling. Fangirling. Mm. Fawning. Love. Like a really major hype girl to a, a, an unhealthy degree almost. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks. So fawning is actually the newest accepted addition to the primary reactions of danger. Um, and it is when we try to minimize the danger or the threat by pleasing and appeasing the threat. 
So we feel triggered. We're going to please or appease the threat. And we do whatever we can to keep the threat or the abuser happy despite our own needs and wants. That last part is essential here. It's putting other people's desires, comfort, needs ahead of our own as a way to please them as a coping strategy. It is called being a mother. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the other term that's commonly used for it is people pleaser. People pleaser. Agreed. But I always, when I thought of it, when when we were discussing it, I thought of it more as like a overly pleasing, like to a uncomfortable degree. Yeah. I think that any of the four of these can show up, and I have noticed this in my work with clients, it can show up in any shade of the spectrum. It can be a tiny bit and it can be super intense. And I think the reason that I'm so passionate about this podcast in general is awareness unlocks everything. Agreed. Like once you understand that this is you know, the way that you cope, then you can start to look for tools to to heal it, to manage it, to work with it and try to integrate it and move yeah. it along and evolve it. The more you know. <laughs> oh, you did the thing and I did the song. Um, so Fawn actually was coined by a psychotherapist named Pete Walker. Um, and he added it as the F, the fourth F in this Thanks. fight flight or freeze. Um, So I want to actually tell you some signs that you know that you're fawning. Does that sound good to you? Okay. Okay. I feel like I want you to keep a little check. Let's, samesies, let's do a checklist and see how many of these we are a yes to. How about that? Are you, you just grabbed a pen. Yeah. What do I do? Should I grab a pen? All right. I'm grabbing a pen too. Make a, yeah. Make a little mark for everyone that sounds like you. But remember, this isn't black or white. It can it. be a shade of it. It can be sometimes. It can. Be, it doesn't have to be all the time. All right. Got it. So I'm going to shut my eyes. <laughs> total neglect of personal needs and boundaries. Giving constant praise and compliments, even if it's not authentic. That is not you. That is not um, Inability to say no. Having no sense of personal identity. Hypervigilance and awareness of others' moods and emotions. Unaware of one's own emotions and feelings, looks to others to find answers to how um, to feel or they should feel, makes themselves as helpful and useful as possible to others, grants every wish and demand of others, feeling guilty when not being helpful or able to fulfill someone's request. How many did you get? Six. You? Ooh, I got eight. Ooh, oh, snap. You a fawner, girl. I'm a fawner. I knew that this was me when I first started understanding it better. <sighs> I know that you know you better, but like, I don't feel like that's who you are. I, but again, well, it's not black and white, but I don't see you doing a lot of those behaviors. You know what? I think that there is always the triggered self and the higher self. We've talked about it a hundred times. I talk to clients about this constantly, that your awareness of whether you're making decisions from your triggered self or your higher self, that deep intuitive wisdom is really important. And I think people who really love you see you in your higher self. And I think you're in that category, TJ's in that category. And likewise, I see you in your higher self. So when you sometimes are critical of yourself, I'm like, I don't see that about you. But I think that when we are in our triggered self, 
in yeah. our fear self, yeah. then we can obviously then these are the trauma responses that we would use. And I'm so often not in my triggered state when I'm with you because exactly I'm calm, so I don't have these reactions, right? Exactly. Yeah. And you know what? By the way, side note, yeah. I think it's really important in this personal growth journey that we're all on to surround yourself by people that you can stand yes. in your dignity with. Yes. And that you can be your high that bring out your higher self. Like find yourself a bean. Have a TJ in your life. <laughs> you know, bean, like girl. Yeah, get a bean. Find people who <laughs> see your higher self and bring yeah. that out. Our producer Anais does that for me. Like my Aww. sister, there are people, my brother, there are people in my life. And that's where I've cultivated most of my time and attention. That's what I've noticed is that I'm getting older. I was gonna the, say the people who I can stand in my dignity, be my higher self around, that's who's gonna get most of my time and attention. I was thinking when you're younger, all of that is so murky. You don't even really realize who your higher self is yet. And then as you age and you get older, you become more in tune with it sometimes. And then you yeah. start to realize, why don't I sort of embrace everybody the way I used to? And why am I so selective with who I give my energy to? Yeah, exactly. And I really think that's why. I think we start to realize like, yo, time is short. But not only yo. that, it's exhausting to feel so contracted. Yeah. Agreed. It's exhausting to feel so small all the time. And I think that's why our friendship was always so powerful because we like instantly saw that in yes. one another and never felt triggered in any way. Yeah. So maybe guys, if you're listening, stop for a minute, like truly pause this podcast and do a quick scan of your relationships and ask yourselves, which of these relationships make me feel like my higher self? Which of these relationships trigger me into that contracted, smaller fear self? It's but then, listen, you you don't have to do anything with that knowledge. I'm not asking for. I always say this, like I'm not asking for decisions. I'm just asking for awareness because that awareness plants seeds that grow into more organic actions. Totally. And after you pause you it, come say? back on and subscribe and <laughs> leave a great review after you're done pausing. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Something in it for you, something in it for us. <laughs> a little bit here, a little bit in my pot. <laughs> All right. So one of the things about fawning that I find really interesting that I relate to, and I want to be really careful with this word, is those of us that identify as empaths. And I say careful because this word has now been so overused and ridiculed in our culture because as soon as there was awareness that there was such a thing as empath, people started to overuse it, which I think created Very an exhaustion, mm -hmm. correct, with this word. But empath, as I define it, is just an ability to feel other people's feelings as if they are happening to you. Yes. Okay? It's not looking at someone and noticing they're sad. That's not empath. It's, for me at least, ever since I was little, walking into a room and literally feeling sad. Yes. feeling like my heart is breaking or like I'm angry. And most empaths, or use another word if that makes your eyes want to roll, most people who can feel other people's feelings have to spend a lot of time um, understanding how to separate other people's feelings from their own. We should do a whole episode on that for empaths because I think it's, I, I mean, my sister, I know one of my children is, and I think that a lot of empaths don't learn that lesson. So their superpower becomes too overwhelming for them to utilize. 
and they sort of shy away from the world instead of like yes. using their gift to understand the world better. Oh, 100%. And what we'll do is we will fawn because Ooh, good point. it is when you feel the depth of an emotion, think about this as a kid. I'll just really be honest about my own childhood. I have a very, very, very loving mom who, when she can focus on it, will make sure that my experience of joy and happiness is at the forefront, right? Like that's her intention, but she's a human being who has feelings and she doesn't understand when, you know, I'm three, four or five years old, she's got an empath, right? right? So she's having feelings beneath what she's projecting when she's going through a really heartbreaking marriage and divorce. Then she feels isolated when they get divorced. She is having to raise two girls on her own without any financial help from my father. Yeah, I mean, very little. As an immigrant in this family whose whose family is in Iran, thousands of miles away. Uh-huh. So her heart is constantly breaking. My experience of her is one of duality, of like such total unconditional love and joy and deep sadness. She never really cried in front of me. She, if I told her this, she'd be like, "I, I was never sad in front of you." But an empath child feels Knows. deep sadness, and when I was little, it felt like I couldn't breathe. Sometimes it felt like my heart was like caving in on itself, and I didn't understand that that wasn't my feeling. All I understood is that sometimes when she was around, it felt that way. So what did I do to ease that own suffering in my own body? I would make sure I was doing what she needed to cheer up or to feel good. That's how you fawn. You're getting emotional. It's just relatable. It's not me, but it's I it's a you worded it perfectly, I think. Yeah. It's just something we do as a way to relieve the pressure on ourselves. It's not this selfless, right. you know, um act of martyrdom. It is man, this is really hard. Let me, what do I do? What are the things I notice I do that ease this pressure? Oh, it's when I'm all about your satisfaction and your happiness. And when I do that, you're okay, which makes me okay, which is how I think most people default to fawn as a, most empaths default to fawn as a trauma response. Totally. Very well said. Bravo. Bravo, Bean. Thank you. Thank you. My favorite line so far though, I have to say is get yourself a bean. Can we write that down somewhere? Get yourself a bean. <laughs> Don't you think we should make a t-shirt? Obviously. I mean, obviously. Let's have a mer- well, let's do a whole merch. I feel like we have so many good one-liners. I think we should. I'm not I, against that. For our 12 followers on YouTube, we'll make some merch. <laughs> you know what? Our well, uh we gotta find an anniversary moment. Like there's gonna be a 50th episode moment, a hundredth <gasps> episode moment. And what? in that moment, we should release a t-shirt. Okay, let's drink champagne okay. too, even though it bothers my stomach now because I'm old. Oh, deal. Let's do champagne and shirts. Ooh, champs and shirts. Perf. That, Perf. that reminded in. me. Have you heard of this golden bachelor that's out right now? I've heard of it, yes. I haven't seen it. Okay, Have so you? it's the bachelor with the guy is uh, in his mid-70s and so are most of the women. And they showed this clip. I don't know what I was watching. I think it was like YouTube with my kids where they're playing Never Have I Ever, but they're doing it with ice cream. <laughs> Instead of alcohol. And then in one of the like confessional rooms, one of the women is like, and I really have to stop eating this ice cream because I'm lactose intolerant. (laughs) I was like, this is the golden bachelor. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's what I would be like. So that's you with champagne. Anna, uh, anyway, so Sorry. back to fawning. I want to talk a little bit about how we can heal it, but I want to pause here because I feel like I've just been going nonstop. What are your thoughts? What are your reflections? What are you curious about? I mean, I'm really curious about fawning and I'm actually slightly curious about freezing as well. If you can also go into that in a little bit of detail, because when I was reading about it, I could think of one particular instance that that I know I witnessed somebody freezing as a trauma response, but I've never oh. really seen it in real life ever again. I, I, it was actually in the moment. I think the person was experiencing trauma in that moment. It was the first time. It wasn't even like a oh. triggered moment. It was trauma in that moment. I'm laughing because at the time it seemed very comical. I'm sure it was really hard. Um, what happened? Can you I'll, tell I'll go. Yes. I was in a speech class in college um, in undergrad with two of my roommates actually. And we were all, you had to give speeches all the time. That was like part of the class was public speaking. So you'd have to go up and give like a five minute speech in front of the class. There were maybe 20 of us in the class. And this one guy went up one time and he got to the podium with his speech cards and he just, and I don't mean like froze for a second and then got it together, like was staring at all of us for so long. I don't know why the professor didn't oh, interrupt. God, He was tr like physically frozen in that moment. I mean, his mouth was open. He just kept like looking back and forth. We all didn't know what was going on. I didn't know if he was about to get angry or we were like, what? I feel like if it happened in this day and age, people would have panicked. At that time, we were like, what is going on? But he, and then when he was done, he even said, I am so sorry. That has never happened to me before. <gasps> like he said, he Aww. just was completely, completely frozen. In fact, I do remember, and I can't remember anything. His next speech was, we had to do a speech on like, never have you ever or something. And his <laughs> next speech was, have you ever like frozen completely in a room full of people staring at you? He knew oh my God. It, yeah. He knew that it was like a really wild moment in time, but he was f physically guy. frozen. He was okay. That's, That's why I'm laughing. He was really okay yeah, yeah, yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. But I had never seen, and I still honestly, to this day, I've never seen anything quite like that. What, what, how does it present itself wonder, in normal life? I wonder if stage fright is freeze then. And I wonder if oh, yeah. that is about attention suddenly. Like yes. suddenly eyes yes. being on you triggers some kind of trauma. So what was it about people looking at you or watching you or right. being aware of you yes. that was unsafe as a child that gets triggered in those moments of being on stage and having stage fright that causes you to do this freeze response? That's the way that I would think about that. Yeah. Um, I don't know a ton about freeze. I want to be honest with you other than what I've said, but I do know that when you're aware um, that it is something you do in response to being triggered or uncomfortable or sad, then you can start to really work with that aspect of yourself. Like almost seeing this aspect that freezes as a separate aspect that you can dialogue with. What are you afraid of? What are you needing? What is it that you know, you're trying to protect? What is your worst fear? Same thing that I talk about in my method when you talk to your younger selves or your limiting belief systems, you know, maybe seeing this freeze aspect as, hey, you're just trying to help me survive. What are you really afraid of? And dealing with the fear beneath it is how you can start to understand it better and heal it. 
So can we use like a tangible example? When you mentioned before you were saying um, decision paralysis, which I actually struggle with a lot. So I guess that is one of my trauma responses. Um, So if you are in the moment and you just cannot make a decision and you're basically frozen, what do you say to yourself? I tell people this all the time. It's really okay to say to the person if you're in freeze, um, I need a minute or I'll come back to you on that. I think that's always okay. Yes, just give yourself an out for a second and go let whatever's happening, this aspect of you that's deeply trying to protect you, like do its thing and then do what I was talking about, which is, hey, what are you afraid of in making this decision? It's. I think it's less about focusing on the coping mechanism and focusing on the fear that the coping mechanism is trying to protect Protect. you from. Got it. That's wise. So wise. Thanks, Bean. Can we go back to fawning though? Or- oh, sorry. Yes, <laughs> I was okay. stuck in frozen mode. <laughs> you were. Frozen I was freezing in frozen in freezing. So we really? already said that you can have more than one. Oh, you know what I would like to talk about actually. Yes. Would, may I please? Um, please? I did, which I thought was interesting, and I didn't even think of it that way while I was reading about it. Is that all of these? Well, most of them can be done in a healthy way. You think of trauma responses as completely unhealthy no matter what. But when they're done within reason and like with certain boundaries in place, it's actually can be a healthy way to respond to something. Like for example, fight, you think everyone just like, those are the people who just jump and start like punching you in the face when they're mad at you. But actually they, if you want to use it in a healthy way, you can set up, it's like being assertive with your boundaries. You can Uh say, these are my boundaries. And that actually falls under the umbrella of fight because you're asserting yourself and you're putting your needs forward. And there were all different examples of each one of these and how you can do them in a healthy way. Even the flight, I think something I did read actually was, let me take a step back. Let me just take a second to myself, like, because that's what your body needs for a second. It needs like to breathe and then return to the situation calmer. That is such a good point. I love that point that there these are aspects of you that can come up and be utilized to actually be really effective as long yeah. as you're aware of them and utilizing them with boundaries. I was thinking about this when I was thinking about all of these, but fight specifically, mm-hmm. you know, we all have generational trauma that mm-hmm. gets triggered when shit goes down in the world. Yeah. And I think that that fight mechanism that gets triggered in us being used in a healthy way are protests, are speaking up, are being out there and fighting the system that's causing the oppression that created this generational trauma. So I think that's a really good example of utilizing fight in a productive way. Otherwise, shit wouldn't change if we didn't use the fight trauma response to fight what needed to change. So I really like that point. And maybe at the end, we're going to talk a little bit about like what healthy coping mechanisms look like, we can come back to this. Totally. I Because I actually think it'll be the strongest takeaway from this episode, hopefully. Yeah. But I do think fawning is relevant because our culture also really rewards fawning. So I wanted to take a minute to talk about how we have a culture of rewarding fawning. We've talked about this in our parasocial episode. I think we, we mentioned this over and over again. But we have a culture of icon worship where we have to build people up as a way to, you know, worship them and then tear them down as a way to deal with our own shame. But 
when we think about our culture of the way that we become obsessed with celebrities, influencers, um, and the way that our media feeds that obsession with headlines and paparazzi and photos and now social media constantly feeding us. Like, look at Taylor Swift at these Chiefs games. Yeah. Football has become about Taylor Swift right now. If you're not a football fan, right? Yeah. If you're not, if you are, it hasn't. Obviously, it's football. But now all of these people are watching because of the glimpse they might get of Taylor. And listen, we love her. I love her. But I think that that is an example of how our culture really rewards this idea of fawning. It's like, we're going to keep feeding you these images and these moments of access because you are falling all over yourself um, to be near this person somehow. Is that the same type of fawning as a trauma response or is that a different? It's not. Okay. It's not. So it's similar. I think this is the tangent that it's attached to. Fawning as a trauma response is you're trying to please other people um, ahead of your own needs. Right. But I think that that is attached to the idea that others are somehow more valuable than you. And so when I say our culture rewards fawning, this idea of worshiping celebrities, influencers, people with lives that we want, there's a value judgment in there sometimes. There's a, you know, look at how amazing and dazzling this person is. And when you compare yourself, you're like dowdy and not dazzling. I think that is what I mean about. (laughs) That's what I mean about our culture of rewarding fawning is like we're 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 encouraged to look with stars in our eyes at people who we perceive to be better than us. And that notion of someone being better than you, I think, feeds into the trauma response of fawning, which is valuing others over yourself. But is the response actually valuing others over yourself when you're doing it truthfully at your core to make yourself feel safe in that moment? You're not, I mean, you're not, you will forfeit your own needs to um, pacify the person who is causing the trauma. But the end goal really is because you're like, this is how I feel the most safe. Yeah, I think it's both. I don't think this is an or. I think you can have the need to feel safe and in doing that, decide the other person's needs are more valuable than yours and then put them ahead of yourself. The other thing that I think around fawning is just how women are trained in our society to be fawners, truly. If you go through that list that I read that we ticked through, women, people who identify as female – are taught that our value is in, um, you know, not really saying no if it's going to make someone else uncomfortable, Uh, you know, making ourselves as helpful and useful as possible to others, granting every wish and demand of others. It's really trained into us as people who identify as female that our value is in creating a sense of comfort and understanding and, you know, allowing others to feel seen and nurtured and cared for, and therefore we now derive value. So I would venture to guess that a lot of women have a fawning response because that's just how we've been taught to see ourselves as valuable. If we do a callback to the episode we did on personality um, tests, yes, we, we saw it there too, that a lot of women, when they take the test, come back as a, I, it was a number, number two. two. But what was the helper. that? The helper. The helper. And not even because that's actually what their personality is, but they have been trained basically to answer questions the way that women are supposed to behave. Yes, exactly. And I hate bringing this, I always bring it back to 
being a mother, but I mean, that's the core of my life right now. So, but I, I see this in that, like, you know, mothers haven't been um, giving themselves the amount of self-care necessary to be the best version of themselves because we're constantly feeling like we need to put everybody else ahead in order for us to be doing our job correctly. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Agree. <laughs> no, it's true. It. I, and I no, but I think um, again, awareness around that is so important Agreed. because it should sort of piss you off mm-hmm. if you identify as female. You should yes. sort of hear this and be like, "Wait a minute, right. is that my entire identity? It's to please others." Is even though I've been subconsciously trained to believe that's my value, this is kind of a moment of us trying to snap us all awake and say, is this what you want though? Is this really what you want? And when you don't take the time to see it that way, what are the desires that sit within you that have been completely neglected? I don't know, which is why I'm on this transition journey (laughs) right now. (laughs) Because exactly. No, but it's I'm asking all of us to think about it. What are the desires that we are covering up that we are afraid to look at that we don't even know exist because of this indoctrination and this training. And when you don't look at those desires, um, they become repressed. And listen, depression is repression. So when you're repressing what it is you want and need, that's how you start to feel disconnected from self, disconnected from the world. Depression also obviously is a medical condition that needs to be treated by a medical professional. But I also believe that when we repress, we become depressed. So when we're not looking at our desires, that's not just me saying, go be selfish, moms or ladies. No. Kids. Head out. No, I'm saying you have natural desires built in you and they're there because you have a purpose. And when you don't look at those desires, you're repressing them, which is going to disconnect you from yourself ultimately. I need to know, did you make that up? Depression is repression or is that a thing? Did you make that up? I have said it in my sessions a ton to clients, but I bet you if you went and Googled it, someone else has said it too. I've never read it. it. Nope. I'm trademarking it right here. I've never read it ever, but I also, let me just say, I tend to intuit a lot of teachings that other people have also taught. Like for example, my limiting belief systems method where we go in and we find the age, that's called internal family systems. I started talking about that method and then realized there was a whole internal family systems book and narrative out there. So I tend to say things, guys, I'm just going to say that I know are probably out there. I will honestly say I've never read that statement before, but I do use it in my practice a lot. I don't think it's wrong. Like, I don't think everything you do is completely your own. I mean, I think you've come to almost all of the conclusions on your own, truthfully, but of course they exist because they're, they're methods that are successful. Yeah. Right. Totally. And you have a gift at utilize using them. Well, thanks. Fawning so hard over you right now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What are you trying to take care of? What do you need right (laughs) now? I don't know. I don't know. Um, Is there anything else I could do for you? <laughs> All right. So we said that after we talked about this, we would just quickly talk about which of the four we relate to. Okay. What do you think? Which I mean, ones are uh, your trauma responses? I'm definitely flight, sometimes freeze, but mostly flight. I'm very conflict avoidant. I guess it actually depends. Like, like if you come for my kids or anything, I am straight fight. Like I am ready to rumble if, you, if anything has to do negatively with my kids. 
But for the most part, I'm very conflict avoidant. I don't like it. It makes me feel uncomfortable. I run away. I kind of ignore it if I can, or I just kind of move along. I also don't get ruffled that easily. I have to be honest. Like I don't get upset until you like really, really upset me. Yeah, I would agree. I think that you are flight and a little bit of freeze too. Yeah, I actually think you're not getting ruffled is your superpower and a trauma response. Probably, it keeps everything which is freeze. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um. So mine, we already talked about. I'm definitely fight, but I'm also very much fawn, which I think is so funny because I think they're two opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Fight and fawn. Yes, are the total opposite. I don't think fight and flight are opposite. I think fight and fawn are opposite. Can you give me a current day example of your fawning? Because you gave me one from when you were younger. It totally makes sense. But like, yes. I never see you in that light. I can get really triggered back to a place of deep childhood insecurity of right. when I didn't fit in. I never fit in at school. I didn't have a ton of friends. You've already mm-hmm. We've already talked about this in the high school episode. I had a few very good friends, but I wasn't popular. And I think fitting in just always felt really awkward to me because I have such a heightened sense of self-awareness. Like, yeah. and I'm not saying that egoically. I mean yeah. <laughs> to a like to a like degree that's not healthy where right. I'm so aware of everything I'm doing or saying and how it's making the other person feel and how they receive me. And so I think that when I get into fawn nowadays, it's when I am entering new social situations or when I enter situations with people who hold more power than me and that I need access to them for something that I will go into fawn. I will make it all about them. I'll ask questions about them. They ask about me. I'll turn the conversation right back to them. Um, and people will leave those situations like, wow, you're, you know, Maury's such a good listener. And it's like, yeah, because I just made that whole thing about you. So I think that's when I do it. I think it's when I, that awkwardness, that, that little like 14 year old gets triggered and she's like, fun. Yeah. And I don't really see you in that situation ever. No. Right. No. So that's totally. why I never see it. I believe it. So how do you, we were what talking we earlier about, yeah, we were talking about how some of them can actually be healthy. What do, what do you think a healthy view of fawning is? Like what's a healthy way to implement fawning if it is one of your natural trauma responses? I think there's some charisma to fawn. Ooh. Or the riz, as the kids are saying. The you riz. taught me that. I think you taught me that. I know. Did and I use it right? Just die. But you know, the way that like Gen Z is, is like by now it's already dead. I, like oh, it was cool six it. months ago and now oh, it's like the dumbest thing you could it. ever say. But I anyway. don't have the um, riz. You don't. Damn so it. back to the charisma though, I think that if you're thinking about what we were saying earlier around using these as healthy coping mechanisms, like fight can be healthy to assert boundaries, to fight yeah. the power and the system, um, you know. Freeze, I think, can be healthy when you just need to take a beat. Like, we don't have to be so reactive. I tell my clients all the time, pause, pause. It actually, you know, I did a little bit of speech training early in my career with executives. It's what makes Obama such a impactful speaker is that he pauses a lot. I'm not saying he's freezing. But he pauses at, like, really um, poignant moments that that give you a moment for a pause as well. Yes. So that's that's where I think that could be good. Flight, I think, can be a healthy coping mechanism when a situation is just becoming, you know, inconceivably terrible and you need to not be in that situation. It's time to remove yourself from that situation. And fawn, like I said, I think there's a charisma to it. Mm -hmm. And this could easily, you know, 
skip over the line to manipulation. So I think you have to check your intention here. But it is about, you know, when we deal with highly egoic beings, which in my career I do a lot. Right. Um, there no is judgment. a way that you can ease their distrust, e- make them feel comfortable by shining a little bit of light on them and giving them the attention and the focus that they require to get more comfortable. And when you do that, then you have more trust and then that connection can serve you as well. All right. So should we end this episode with some advice about how I would work with clients who are using fawning as a trauma response and how to maybe heal this aspect? Yes. Any type of people pleasing. Yes. I think a ton of people will relate to that. Okay. So I'm going to, there's a lot of things I can tell you, but I'm going to focus on four. Okay. I think the first is awareness. I just always want to start with awareness. It is the most critical, powerful tool in your toolbox, becoming aware of the way that you respond to things. And how they serve you and how they do not serve you. And the part about how they serve you is critical because we are in this like binary where something is either good or bad, right? And we look at our trauma responses, our limiting beliefs as things that are bad that we need to do away with. Yeah, That I think is even worse to do because then you're making these aspects feel like they're not valuable, which is what we've been treated like our whole lives by people. Like, we already think we're not valuable. So when you make these aspects feel like they're not valuable, you're just underscoring the sad, painful, limiting belief they have. So that's why I say really having awareness of how is this actually serving me? Thank you. Gratitude. And how is this detracting from my life? And I am not the trauma response. So if I am in fawning right now, that just means there's an aspect of me. For me, it's this little kid who grew up realizing that's how I was going to be safe. So really separating myself from her and seeing her and being like, I see what you're doing. I see that you're using a very old strategy to try to keep me safe. I appreciate it. And it's not me. It's not current me. So that would be the first one. The second one then is, Tap into what you really want in that situation. That's Take so hard a moment. For me. Yeah, that's, it's my, that's so always hard. my hardest part is like, what am I looking for here? What is my end game here? I, I often don't yeah. even know. I'm going to give you a tip on that, which is to just do a reframe there. When you're trying to get in touch with your wishes, your desires, just knowing what you want in a situation is just to ask yourself if I knew that the thing I wanted was going to create the best outcome for everyone, what would it be? Just asking yourself in a way, because remember, we're not going to get rid of the fawner. So the fawner still wants everyone to be okay. So if I knew that the thing I really wanted was the answer to make everyone okay, including me, what is that thing? What do I want? And I'm talking micro moments. I'm not talking life. I'm not asking, what do you want in life? I'm saying in this dynamic with this friend right now where I'm fawning, in this meeting right now where I'm fawning, in this relationship where I'm fawning, what do I want? And the answer will come to you if you frame it that way. The third thing I'll say is learn to love the word no. No is an abundant word. Yeah. I don't love that word. Is an abundant word. What do you think I mean when I say that no is an abundant word? Um, it gives you 
the power that you need. No is no. It creates power and it creates space in your life. And boundaries, yes. Yeah. When we are fawners, we tend to be overscheduled. We tend to be overdoing it. We tend to be running around doing a bunch of things for a lot of different people. And that is filling our lives with activity and noise that's making it harder to hear the desire and to hear the truth inside of us. So no is abundant means no is giving you space to come back to self. So start to get comfortable with no. And I tell people this all the time when we're in sessions and they have that reaction of like, Ugh. it's like, look, healing is about being afraid of doing the thing and doing it anyway. Right. I'm not telling you that when you go to say no, you're going to suddenly feel really comfortable with it. I think that for a lot of people pleasers, the the fear of the guilt they'll feel if they say no in the moment feels more weighty and powerful yeah. than the no itself. And they think I might as well just say yes, because if I say no, I'll harp on this guilt anyway. So I'll just do it. It'll be easier yes. that way. But you yeah. have to be able to sit with that guilt. And I wonder if over time your power grows and your guilt starts to minimize. Yes, absolutely. Because you had that space. Yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable. That discomfort is where the growth is. That right. discomfort is where the healing happens, yeah. right there, yeah. that discomfort. And then the last one I'll say is, we said this in the beginning, let go of the relationships that aren't serving you. Let go of the relationships where your no's are going to be met with um, demands and anger or abuse. Um, let go of the relationships where you're afraid to be in your truth so that you can start to practice putting your boundaries in place, getting in touch with your desires, healing that younger self who wants to fawn in a safe environment with people who are going to love and support and care for you. I'm not saying they're always going to get it. I mean, you and I have had little ripples. It's with everyone. When you get to this place of like, nope, I'm going to say the thing that feels true to me, people aren't going to applaud you. They're going to be like, I'm super uncomfortable. Right. But the ones who are the real ones, they're going to stick through it with you. And that's the safe space to practice this with. Find your safe That's space. what I would say. Get yourself a Find bean. Your, those are the four. <laughs> Find yourself a bean. Get yourself a bean. All right, Bean. I think right, that's Bean. it on fawning. Let's do your famous Melissa's takeaway. What do you got? What's your big takeaway from Wait, this episode? I have a quick on question before our takeaway. Oh, okay. My question is: Do you think you can grow out of certain trauma responses, or are they always a part of you? You just have to learn how to manage them. Mm, that's a good question. I think they're always a part of you, but they become quieter and quieter over time, and you can get to a place where they're quiet the most of the time and just trusting you to navigate life. But I don't think that any part of us is disposable or just disappears. And I just really answered my own question. Like I was talking about earlier, there are all these examples of how to utilize these responses in a healthy manner. So I guess even if it is your, uh, whatever you, your automatic go-to, you can use it, but use it in a evolved, healthier way. So my takeaway is, yes, absolutely. I think my, my takeaway really is what you often say, which is just awareness, is don't try to fix all of your trauma responses today, but just try to hear what we said and see where you fall in the set of four most popular trauma responses and think about it and think about where it comes from, how you can work on it, how you can shift it into a healthier method. That's my takeaway. The end. Beautiful. All right. Well, guys. 
Thank you for listening today, Bean. I hope you have a good rest of your day. You too. Toodaloo. Toodaloo. Bye. Bye. This has been another episode of Signal, the podcast that raises your frequency. This podcast is co-hosted by me, Maury Fontanez, and Melissa Gushka. Special thanks to my production team, Anushree Thekadet, Arman Kassam, and Anais Islami. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. See you then.